I'm just so glad that all of you are here today. It's a little awkward when no one shows up to church and you're supposed to preach. I was reminded, this has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about, by the way, but I was reminded as I was listening of a comment that a worship leader made I heard years ago where he said, people ask all the time about how's the music at your church? You go to a different church, how's the music at your church? He said, honestly, it's the wrong question. The question everyone should be asking is, how is the singing at your church? And I can just say, since I confess most of the time I have my ears all stopped up so I can hear what's going on up here, I really don't get to hear you all sing as much as I would like. It sounds amazing. You all have a wonderful, wonderful attitude of worship when we, when we sing. So, will you pray with me? Let's, I know we just did. We're going to go back because you can't pray too much, so... God, we thank you for this morning and just the, the privilege and the honor that it is to be a part of your family, to be part of your church. God, you have blessed us in incredible and unimaginable ways. And as we begin to look at just a few of those this morning and to start that process of discovering what your word says about who we are and how you have defined us, God, I just pray that you would inhabit this place, that your spirit would move in our hearts, that we would be convicted of ways in which maybe we have not thought properly of you, and God, that we would be encouraged and challenged in, and, and excited by what your word says about who we are and what you have for us. These things we ask in the name of Jesus, it is because of him that we can even come and pray, come into your presence, God. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to do something a little bit different in that this Sunday and this coming Wednesday and then the following Sunday is actually one extended sermon, if you will. There's too much to fit into one without things getting really awkward with how fast I have, I'd have to speak. So what we're going to do instead is, is sort of break this up into three parts. Has anyone ever, random question I know, has anyone ever studied the structure of literature and how stories are told? You've got, or plays, how many acts are there in a play typically? Three? All right. It just so happens we've got three parts, but the first part is the exposition. It's where you lay out the backstory and build the characters and understand just kind of what is the landscape that's there in which this story is going to be told. Part two, does anyone know? You lit majors from, from college? It's the conflict. Wednesday. Wednesday is not a standalone message. Wednesday is not a throwaway message. Wednesday is the heart of why all of this matters. So I hope you'll be able to find time to come out Wednesday and as, we, as we discover that as well. And then Sunday is part three, act three, it's the resolution. If you don't come on Wednesday, you're not going to understand why everyone is so happy next Sunday. But that's what we're going to do. That's kind of how we're going to structure things. So God has laid something on my heart, been laying something on my heart for a while as a topic that we really don't understand very well as the church. And it's an important topic because... Well, all, all topics as they relate to God, I guess you could say, are important. But this one is at the very heart 
of what we are here for as not just Christians, but as people. And to not understand this is to risk not understanding a lot of other things and and getting a lot of other things wrong as it pertains to how we are to live, how life is supposed to work from God's perspective. And so want to take the time to dive into what is going to be really doing a lot of theology. And before eyes roll back in the heads and faces glaze over, I just want to say theology is not supposed to be. It's not intended to be a dry topic. In fact, theology is really just understanding what is right and what is true about who God is. And it's important because if you, if you don't think rightly, you can't act rightly. And the whole goal of the Christian life is to live rightly, to live as God intended. But we can't do that unless we first think rightly about who God is. And so that's where we're going to start. So the topic is, in general, the image of God and exploring what that actually is and why it matters and all these things. Because I have a suspicion that we all know that phrase, but we've maybe never really delves into what exactly the image of God is and what it isn't and why it makes a difference and all these things. So, by show of hands, how many of you have actually studied the image of God in Scripture before beyond just you know, reading it and knowing that that's a phrase that's in Scripture? Awesome. Both of us are going to have a lot of great conversation. No, I'm kidding. So that's actually good because that means this... this It's going to be probably a worthwhile discussion. So, another show of hands. As you, based on just what you know now, as you conceive and think about the image of God, all of us have an idea of what that means, that we are created in the image of God, all that. As you think about the image of God and God's original creation, we also know that things are not as they were created to be, that there was a fall. Something happened to humanity. So here's the question. Show of hands, how many of you, as you think about the image of God, would say, would agree with this statement? That the image of God, when Adam and Eve fell, was either destroyed or it was severely damaged. Does anyone, would anyone say that you think the image of God has been severely impacted, if not maybe completely impacted by the fall? Okay, a few of you. How many of you would say, maybe it's not been severely impacted or even destroyed, but that you would say when Adam and Eve fell, that the image of God was some, somehow impacted in some way, shape, or form. Something happened to it, though maybe not as badly. That we're not as, it's not completely gone, but it's certainly been affected. Anyone? Okay, a few more of you. Would anyone say that when Adam and Eve fell... It had no impact whatsoever on the image of God. Okay. All right. So we're kind of split up roughly thirds, which I'll confess is not what I expected, but this is good. So this is where we have room for, for some, from some study. So here's what I'd like to do. We're going to start looking at the scriptures and talking about what exactly the image of God is insofar as we can gather. Because the truth is, is that the Bible does not explicitly tell us this is the image of God. 
And I think we'll see as we look at passages that part of the reason for that is that it's too broad of a topic to just list. Uh, so, it tells us some things that it is not. And we'll kind of start there. We'll, we'll piece this together bit by bit. So turn with me, if you will, to the very first passage where this language about image occurs in the Bible. And it's right there in Genesis chapter 1. Got to get used to flipping pages. The only time I use a physical Bible is when I preach. All right, we're going to look at verses 26 and 27. Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there's a few things that we learn right off the bat. That man has been created in the image of God, or according to the image of God. That both men and women, male and female, are in the image of God. So there's no differences there. Men and women are equally in the image of God. And that is part of God's original creation. But we also learn that the image of God is, from God's perspective here, a trait of corporate humanity. That from God's perspective, the image of God is something that is true of all of us as a unit of humanity. It's not something that is uh, just to be applied here and there. It's an identity of all people. Now, that's not just the case, but it's an important distinction to make. So let's look at another passage in Genesis chapter 9. I hope your thumbs are ready for this, by the way. We're going to be, this is, we're getting into sword drill territory here. It's all the flipping we're going to do. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Now, this is, in context, this is God speaking to Noah and setting, setting down some uh, some commandments for how, how people ought to interact with each other. And one of the first things that he says is in verse 6, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Now this is pertaining to individuals. Not, every, not all of humanity has their blood shed when someone is murdered. So this is in God saying, yes, there's a corporate aspect to the image of God. But there's also an individual aspect to the image of God, that each individual person is in the image. And we see this also reflected in the New Testament. If you'll hop over to the book of James, chapter 3. James picks up on this idea here when when he talks about how we ought to interact and see one another. In verse... 9. Actually, let's back up. Let's look at verse 6. James writes in chapter 3, verse 6, And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. 
For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And here's the problem, James says. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. We'll talk next week about the dichotomy here that James has in mind when he talks about the problem with blessing and cursing coming from the same person. But he's very careful to say that individual people, the way we talk about them matters. And it matters not because it's not nice, not because we are to be a certain way, but because of what is true of the person that we are talking about. In Genesis, we, we are not to violate a person's life because of what that person is, not because of our actions, although our actions have uh, a moral aspect to them. But it is true of them that they are in the image of God, and that is primarily why murder is wrong. We are violating the image. Here, James says it's not just murder. It's not just what we do to someone. It's also how we talk about someone. It's how we conceive of people. It's how we address them. We ought not to treat them this way because of what they are. They are in the image of God. And that carries weight. So we've got a corporate aspect of the image. We've got an individual aspect of the image. But there's more. In the New Testament... Paul talks a lot about this, so we'll, we'll hop to a few places. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse 4. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, In whose case the God of this world, speaking of Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Christ is connected with the image of God. Go with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul also writes, speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then lastly, you don't have to turn there, but in the letter to the Hebrews, the author writes in chapter 1, verse 3, also speaking of Jesus. Actually, I'll back up to verse 2 for context. In these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. Verse 3. And He, speaking of the Son of God, is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. So there's something about the image that is correlated or related to Christ, though it's not identical. The Bible is very clear that we as humans are made in the image of God. But Paul says that Jesus is the image of God. And that's an important distinction. There's something, though, that is related. We are somehow related to Christ because there's the same image here. But our relationship to one another is not the same. Jesus is the image of God. In other words, Jesus is so closely related to God that it can be said that He is, in fact, God. When you look at the characteristics and the attributes of who Jesus is, there's no differences between Him and God. And so we can say He is the image of God. When we look at us, 
I hope it should be obvious that there are things about us that are not exactly true of who God is. There are differences between us and God, and yet we're somehow related. One more trait of what the image of God is. And this gets into sort of a, a little bit more of a hint of what the image actually is. So there are three things that are true about us and what God's intentions are for us with the image. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes in context that we, we ought to put off certain things, we are to put on new things, and he says we should do this, we should put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So there's a part of us that Paul says is being, if things are functioning the way that God intended, is being renewed into the image. There's a restoration that's taking place. And what exactly that restoration is, I think will become clear as we, as we look at more passages. But the idea here is that people have been created in the image of God. Christ is the image of God. And if things are functioning according to plan, we, in the image of God, are being renewed into the, the image of God, which is Christ. Now, I think anyone, if you think about the process of growing as a Christian, this is kind of intuitive that we should be more like Christ. But this is foundational as far as Paul's concerned, that we ought to be becoming more like Christ. And the reason for that is because He is the image in which we've been created. But it's not just renewal. It's not just restoration. In Romans chapter 8, Paul goes further. This is a passage that's probably familiar to most of you, although maybe not with this particular emphasis. Paul says in verse 29 of Romans chapter 8, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So there's a few things going on here. One we're not just being restored to this image, we're being conformed to the image. And that carries with it a different idea. It's not just that things are being sort of repaired, it's that things are being, they're being changed. Something, something new is happening that wasn't happening before. And we're going to see that even more explicitly in just a moment. But I want you to notice too, what is being conformed in this passage? We look at it again. It is those whom God foreknew that God has predestined. In other words, God has known the end from the beginning that those who are in Christ will be, it's a done deal, at some point we will be conformed to the image of His Son. I want you to make the careful distinction here. What is being conformed? Is it the image, or is it those that God foreknew? It is those whom God foreknew. It is people who are being conformed. The image is fixed. It is not changing. It is not being conformed. We are being conformed. Last passage here, 
to look at in terms of this idea of the image. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And this comes at the very end of a long passage on this topic, but we're just going to, for now, look at verse 18. Paul writes, But we all, speaking of these, the Christians here, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, there's a lot in this verse that we can unpack theologically. One, by the way, as we're studying the Holy Spirit, is that Paul associates the Spirit, at the very end of this verse, with the Lord. To Paul, the Lord is the Spirit. They're one and the same. The Spirit is not an impersonal force. It's not an emanation from God. The Spirit is God. And so, we'll get into next Sunday how the Spirit helps us do this and accomplish this. But... This idea here is that not only are we being restored, not only is there repair going on with, with us, not only are we being conformed and there's some, some things that are new, eventually there will be transformation. We will become completely new. And we will become completely new according to the image of God, which is Christ. There's a process that's going on in our lives as Christians. That if all is going the way that God has intended we will, over time, become more like Jesus until eventually we will become exactly what God has intended us to be. And that involves a complete transformation up to and including our own bodies. See, people in Scripture, according to God, are whole persons. We can't separate our body from our mind, from our spirit. We are complete. We're complete package. And this is why the idea that somehow the body doesn't matter or that we can do whatever we want to our bodies doesn't fit with the biblical view of who we are as people. You do not have a body as a Christian. You are a body. You do not have a body. You are a body. But that's not all you are. You are also a spirit. But I want us to understand that from God's perspective, it's the whole person that is involved in this process. Not just your mind thinking more like Christ. Not just your spirit wanting to do things that are more aligned with what Christ would would do and act. It's your very body that is ultimately going to be transformed as well. It's your whole person. So we can say about the image of God that it's something that's true of all of us. It's something that's true of us individually. It's related to who Jesus is because the process of the image of God is somehow involved with us becoming more like Jesus. Now, to be honest, that's that's as explicit as Scripture gets about what the image of God is. That doesn't leave us with a whole heck of a lot in terms of specifics. So practically, what is it? We're going to get there. We're going to kind of back into it. So here's something to consider. There have been a lot of theologians, Christians, from the very earliest stages of the church, the earliest church fathers, all the way up through some of the the Protestant reformers. I'm talking from from St. Augustine, a couple hundred years after the, the first disciples, through Aquinas, all the way through 
to some of the reformers like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jacob Arminius. They have all conceived in their writings of the image of God in terms of either how people are excellent, in other words, the best versions of us is what represents the image of God, or ways in which we are like God presently, in other words, our ability to reason, to think like God, that's what the image of God might be or might entail. Or when we are morally righteous and virtuous, that's an aspect of how we represent the image of God. Or maybe it's our rulership. In Genesis 1, it talks about how the command right after the image of God is associated with us reigning and ruling over creation. So when we reign, when we rule over creation, that is an aspect of what God means by His image. Or even relationships. That in our relationships with one another, in our relationship with God, there's an aspect of that that conveys the image of God. There's a problem with that. It seems right, doesn't it? That, that ways in which we are like God or ways in which we're not like the animals that God also created, that must be what it means to be in the image of God. The problem, of course, with that is we all don't possess those things equally. Look around the room. We write this in our very constitution, right? That it is self evident that what? All men are created equal. Look at us. Is it self-evident that we are all equal? It's not. I'll I'll let you off the hook. It is not self-evident that we are all equal. We are very different in many ways. We differ in terms of strength. We differ in terms of intelligence. We differ in terms of athleticism. We differ in terms of the relationships and status that we have in this world. We differ in so many ways. How could it possibly be self-evident that we are equal? It could only be that we are equal if the thing that is true about us is not and it has nothing to do with what's external. Because externally, we're very, very different. The only thing that makes us equal is what is true in us, not of us. And we live in a world that right now focuses entirely on what is true of us that we can see and that we can differentiate. Our world has confused people who are uh, popular with being people who are important, and it's based entirely on what is true of them what they have, what they possess, what they can do, how smart they are, how famous they are, how wealthy they are. None of these things can be true equally of all of us. And therefore, if that is what the Bible means when it talks about the image of God, of our intellect, of our relationships, of our ability to rule, what does that mean? This is where theology of right thinking gets into right behavior. What does that mean for people who don't have these abilities or capacities or uh, things or traits that are true of them? If our ability to reason, if our cognitive ability and capability is part of what makes up the image of God, 
What does that mean for people who are in comas? What does that mean for people who are born with profound mental retardation? What does that mean for people who are on life support or at the end of their life in hospice care and their minds have degenerated? Are they less in the image of God now? Have they lost something? And if they have, does that mean that they are somehow valued less than you or me? What about people who have relationships and status that we don't have? If that is what the image of God is, even in part, then those who don't have it, those who lack it, are somehow less. They have less of the image, and therefore they are not worth as much as those who have more of whatever it is we're talking about. Do you see the problem with conceiving of the image of God in these ways? It seems right at first until you run it out. But the problem is we have traditionally in the church in various ways, we have run that out. And unfortunately for us, to our shame, some of us have concluded this very thing and have said, yeah, this is where this takes you. They've advocated that certain people be euthanized because they inherently have less of the image than others. This is where the rubber meets the road in terms of theology. It's not just thinking about things and being and getting in your own headspace. Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims, it has been said. And this is especially true when we're talking about the image. So if, if what is being transformed and renewed here isn't, it, it can't be the image, because we don't want to go there, and that doesn't really make sense. If you look again at the Scriptures, what is being conformed, what is being transformed, what is being renewed is never the image. It is the people. Then we should not conclude that some of us have more of the image than others. Being in God's image cannot be anything to do with ways in which we are excellent, ways in which we are presently like God, or ways in which we are unlike the animals or the other creation that God has made. So, where does that leave us? Turn with me to Daniel, chapter 3. The Bible, though it doesn't talk explicitly about exactly what the image is, it gives us an awful lot of hints. And we find some of those hints in the Old Testament. We find others in the New. So I want you to go with me to Daniel chapter 3, and we're going to look at the first 18 verses. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image, this language of images, of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and it's with six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, all the alphabet soup, I'm going to skip that part, <laughs> They stood before the image at the end of verse 3 that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, of men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sounds of the horn and all the instruments, you are to fall down 
and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. So skipping ahead here, we get to verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They, have not, they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and anger, gave orders to bring them before him. And he asked them, is it true that you won't worship this image? And they say, yeah, it's true, we won't. Here's the thing. I want us to see the connection. And this is true in ancient uh, peoples, and it's also true into the New Testament as well. There is a close, extremely close, association in Scripture between images and the thing that the image represents. We see this here because in, in not non-Jewish cultures in the ancient world, the image was so close to the thing it represented that it was considered to be the thing. So this is why when Nebuchadnezzar erects a golden statue and says, worship this, what is it equivalent to? It's equivalent to worshiping Nebuchadnezzar himself. So when people refuse to worship the image, they are refusing to worship him. But this isn't just true in the Old Testament. It's also true in the New. Go with me to Luke chapter 20. Jesus is asked about taxes, which you would think at the time, and it's true today, is probably a touchy subject. They're trying to trip Jesus up here, trying to ask him a political question, but Jesus responds with something that's much more deeply true and much more important. In Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 19, it says, "...the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him, Jesus, that very hour, and they feared the people." For they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. So they questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and that you're not partial to anyone, but teach the way of God in truth. A little pretentious here. But then they say this, Verse 22, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and he said to them, show me a denarius. This is a coin that was used as currency at the time. Whose likeness or literally whose image and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, then give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and give to God the things that belong to God. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Now this isn't an explicit teaching about God's image, but this is possibly one of the most profound statements in the New Testament that's made about images. Jesus asked them to pull out a coin. And we can do this today. We could pull out a penny or a quarter, nickel, whatever you have on you. Jesus says, whose image and inscription is on that coin? It's Caesar's. 
So therefore, this coin has value. It has whatever value is established based on the image of Caesar and the inscription of Caesar that's on it. What Jesus is implying here when he says, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God, is if this coin has its value based upon the image and the inscription on the coin, give to God what belongs to God, implying whose or what's image and inscription has God given his image to? In other words, whose image and inscription has God given his to? That belongs to God. This coin belongs to Caesar because it's, it's got his image. You belong to God because you have his image. So give, give to Caesar whatever belongs to him, but don't miss the bigger point. Give to God what belongs to him. And that is all of you. It is all of us. Because of whose image and inscription is on us. Here's the connection between images and the thing they represent. Images have much more to do with the thing they represent than the the one or the person that possesses the thing. Therefore, the image of God has much more to do with God than it does us. We are in the image of God, but what that means has everything to do with God, not us. The worth and the value, therefore, like the coin, of us as individuals, as human beings, is determined by the image that we bear. The image is not anything external about us. The image is not a capacity or an ability that we can possess. It's not something that we have. Like our bodies, it's not something that we can lose. It is something that is true of us because God has declared it to be so. And therefore, it can't be changed. So, that means the image of God is entirely undamaged, unaffected by the fall, by sin. Not that sin hasn't affected us, but that it has not affected the image because the image of God is God's intention and purpose and plan for us. When God created humanity, He created us to be something. He had intentions for us. He has a plan and a purpose that He intends for not just you and me as individuals, but all of corporate humanity to be one day. Those intentions have not changed. Therefore, the image has not changed. People's worth and value, therefore, has not changed. You are worth an infinite amount because of whose image you are in. It has nothing to do with how smart you are, how athletic you are, how rich you are, Anything about you and anything about you that changes affects your worth and value precisely none. The image has not been damaged. We have been damaged. And therefore, we have been prevented 
from living up to the intentions and the plan and the purpose that God has for us as people. But the image remains unchanged because the image is Christ. On Wednesday, we're going to talk about then, if sin has not damaged the image, then what exactly has sin done to us? How has it impacted us? And why then did we need to be saved? And then next Sunday, we're going to talk about in light of all that Christ has done for us and how sin has been removed, then how then does the Holy Spirit enable us to be able to live up to the intentions and the plan that God has for us? I'll leave you with this analogy. It's fitting that right now we are in the middle of constructing our own building. This is the best way I've ever been able to conceive of the image of God. And maybe this will make this more practical. Before you build a building, what must you have in order to know how to build the building? A plan, also called a blueprint. A template, something, right? Who designs that? An architect. Someone has intentions for what this building that does not yet exist or may be in process is ultimately going to look like and be. Those intentions are represented in the blueprint. Now let's say something happens along the way that the final building either cannot or does not end up looking like the blueprint. Does the blueprint change? It's not affected at all. The fact that the end result doesn't look like or, or can't become what the architect intended has no bearing whatsoever on what the architect intended. We are like that building. God has intentions for us, both individually and corporately. Right now, through sin, people cannot become what God has intended for them. But that does not change God's intentions for them. Every single one of us is part of a wonderful and amazing plan that God has. And it is through Christ that we can come to become that thing that God has always intended for each one of us. God defines us as we sang. And it is God's intentions for you that give you your value and your worth, not anything else. I hope that that encourages you in a world that focuses so much on the ways that we are different. The Word of God focuses on the, the one thing that makes us all the same and all worthy of the value that He has given human beings. And ask the worship team to come up as I uh, close this in prayer. Father God, thank You for what Your Word says about us. Thank You that You have defined us in a way that is fixed. Thank You that You give us our worth, that You give us our purpose, and God, that we can find that, that we can recover that in You. There's so many ways in which this world tries to define us, tries to assign us value, tries to tell us how much we are worth. And God, I pray that Your Spirit would just reinforce to us that Your Word is true, that our value is fixed because of whose image we are in. And though we are damaged, You have provided a way 
for us to reach the intended purpose and goal that you have always had for us. As we look in the coming days at what exactly that purpose and intention is, I pray that you would just encourage us that we would be excited, that we would find a renewed sense of purpose and meaning in life, not because of what we can do, not because of what we can even become, but God, because of what we are, what we have been made by you. We thank you for giving us such a wonderful gift. We pray that we would live according to it. In Jesus' name, amen.